Hi, I'm Jennifer Isabella. And I'm Stephanie Polaris. Your co-host for Forrester's podcast, What It Means, where we explore the major changes in the market influencing executive priorities. Today, we're joined by analysts Ali Mellon and Steve Turner to discuss the rise of ransomware. Welcome both. Thank you so much. Happy to be here. Yeah, thank you for having me on. So I have a few assumptions about ransomware, but let's maybe start with a definition of what it is. I imagine with most things, technologies and other security um, related items, things evolve. So how would you define ransomware today? It's a great question. Ransomware is a type of cyber attack where attackers access and encrypt an organization's data to prevent them from accessing it. Typically, this results in employees losing access to their laptops or workstations and being unable to access any documents or files or anything else they might need to actually do their jobs. Once attackers are able to do this, they can then force the organization to pay a ransom payment to them or risk losing access to that data entirely. Attackers have also taken this kind of attack a bit of a step further. They now not only encrypt the data, but they also steal it and then threaten to release it publicly later. This makes this really a double whammy for businesses. They have to pay the original ransom fee, and then that's also followed by an extortion fee. And to follow up on that, the actual fees, how, how is it paid? Because this is a criminal organization that we're dealing with. So I assume we're not sending them a check that they can go cash at a bank. So... A lot of organizations or, you know, the adversaries that are executing these attacks, they prefer to use a number of different cryptocurrencies or, you know, basically these digital currencies that are really, really hard to track. Um, Common payment methods that we see kind of demanded from those organizations are Bitcoin, Ethereum, you know, you kind of name it, whatever the popular kind of currency is at the time. You know, those are what they're demanding from organizations to be paid to them, to then be offloaded elsewhere so that they, they can't be tracked by, you know, the different agencies throughout the world who are trying to take down these guys. Yeah, that's interesting, too, the, the actual payment itself, because in some organizations, you know, historically, they've targeted less mature organizations. You know, they're, they're targeting people that they know have weaker security and or are desperate. So do those same organizations then have the sophistication to actually pay in Bitcoin? Do they have, um, you know, access to cryptocurrencies? Do they have their own crypto vault? Do they have the ability to pay? Or are they suddenly scrambling or looking for consultancies to help them figure out exactly how to make the payment? So I think, unfortunately, you know, um, from a larger organization standpoint, those are the folks that have had to incorporate that into their incident response plans. Having a, a crypto wallet that has Bitcoin, you know, in it or is prepared to be loaded up with some sort of cryptocurrency is unfortunately kind of the normal operating nature for a lot of the larger organizations. But the smaller orgs or even the small moms and pop, you know, type, you know, stores that we all kind of rely on for our daily, you know, goods or needs, those folks aren't equipped, you know, with that. They don't know what to do in those situations. Those are the folks that, you know, are being targeted in mass and being taken down and, and in some cases going out of business because they don't know what to do. So, you know, those are the folks that 
I think as a as a society, we're trying to arm them with that type of knowledge that you kind of called out, right? You know, so if we're talking about consultancies or just putting out even public information, it's kind of a double-edged sword because we're enabling the payment of of those ransoms by putting out the information out there on how to you know, load up a crypto wallet, create a crypto wallet, you know, and then ultimately pay or send the Bitcoin or Ethereum or again, pick your your currency of choice. You know, that's kind of just feeding into the whole cycle around that. Yeah. And have the criminals been honest? Like as soon as they get paid, are they decrypting and providing access back? It really depends. Sometimes they will send you the decryption key so you can get access to your data. But the problem is, you're dealing with criminals and you're never 100% sure that they're going to send you that key and not just take off with the Bitcoin and leave you high and dry. The majority of ransomware gangs do send along the decryption key, at least according to publicly available statistics. But even still, there's no guarantee that you will be able to decrypt all data back to its original state. And even then, there are incident response procedures that need to be undertaken and improvements to your defenses, of course, that also need to be made, which is going to add more cost. Can you guys give maybe some recent examples of ransomware in action, for lack of better phraseology? Because I feel like certainly there have been some high profile incidents like larger organizations, you know, while we assume they have some protections in place and response plans in place are still falling victim to this as well. It's not just, you know, smaller organizations, right? So there's a couple examples that actually come to mind that I I think that they flashed into the the consciousness of society and then disappeared, you know, back into the the nethers of of people's collective, you know, thoughts. So for example, the Irish health system was attacked by ransomware. And that's that's huge, right? That's the the health system of an entire country. And you know, that that made headlines all over the place, you know, people weren't able to go and get you know, either routine procedures or emergency procedures done. They had to go back to pen and paper for a lot of different things. You know, that was like direct impact on human lives, right? That, that That's something that we are hearing more and more of these types of attacks. But something that I want to call out specifically around that attack is that attack happened back in May. The Irish health system is still not 100% operational. They are still canceling appointments left and right for, you know, procedures that can wait. And emergency, they're, they're only taking emergency cases because they have to. So that's proof that, you know, like Ali was mentioning earlier, while folks can pay the ransom and in, in the majority of cases they get the proper tools to decrypt or unlock, you know, their systems, that doesn't mean that you're immediately going to go back to normal. And, you know, that's that's such a that attack so illustrates the the continuing types of attacks that we're seeing more and more of versus, you know, other attacks that we've heard about, like some that happened on some of the insurance providers that actually provide insurance to organizations against, you know, these types of destructive attacks where they were back to operations within a few weeks. Ali, I don't know if you wanted to call up any other recent examples. Sure. Yeah, we've seen several high profile examples of ransomware attacks in the news. 
the most obvious one that comes to mind is the colonial pipeline attack and um, the attack on an IT company, Kasia. Colonial Pipeline was a particularly dire instance of a ransomware attack as it actually affected the distribution of gas to much of the East Coast. Some attackers look to target critical infrastructure providers such as utilities or hospitals because these organizations literally cannot go a day without having their systems operational. Talking a little bit about what Steve was mentioning with the healthcare system in, um, in Ireland. This has also been exemplified with recent attacks on hospitals in Germany and and other places. Attackers know that, especially during a pandemic, hospitals have to be up and running or there are going to be life and death consequences. You know what's interesting, Tim? We we hear every day about these ransomware attacks. Um, you know, in the in the U.S., where every state has its own breach notification law, um, and some of the law, you know, depending on the way it's worded, you know, if the data was encrypted or they don't believe that there was any harm caused to individuals, they may or may not actually have to report that breach. And then there's also a time frame from which they have to report that breach. Is there a possibility that the stats are even higher that we suspect, which is, you know, if companies actually pay the ransom, they get their data back. If they believe nobody was injured or their data wasn't compromised, they're not reporting it or they're not required to report it. So is it is there also a possibility that it's being underreported? Absolutely. I think there is no doubt that it's being underreported, likely at a business level and also at a consumer level. I can tell you it would not be the first thing on my list to tell a bunch of people I successfully was hit with ransomware and had to pay the ransom, even though it is the right thing to do. Um, So undoubtedly, I think that these attacks are affecting more organizations than we are aware of from statistics alone. Like Ali mentioned, um, you know, while there's a lot of folks out there that don't want to announce that they've been hit by ransomware, whether it's sophisticated or not, right? You know, that transparency goes a very, very long way to helping other organizations protect against the same thing. The more people that speak up, the more people that share their stories about being attacked, you know, the more ways that they can get that information out there. That makes the difference between another thousand people being taken down by the same type of attack. Um, There were a couple examples. uh, Norsk Hydro was an organization that was extremely transparent throughout the life cycle of them, you know, getting hit, recovering. You know, we got a lot of valuable data as a security community and other organizations kind of worldwide knowing, you know, what they were going through, the pain points, knowing how they paid the ransom, you know, like all of all of those different things kind of got taken into account with that. I think there's a lot to be said for that transparency and that information sharing, hopefully becoming commonplace. Yeah. It's interesting too, we talk about it being over the rise in the last few years. And it, it is heartbreaking to constantly see how, how frequently like hospitals and clinics are being hit. You know, the people who can least afford it and least deal with it. Um, but it is interesting. I'm wondering the drive and the rise. Is it because it just has become the most financially lucrative form of cybercrime? You know, I think back in 2010, 
maybe even prior, you know, the cost of a stolen record on the black market, you, I mean, you could sell that for $30 a record, but then there were so many breaches, so much stolen information. The cost per record actually went down to, I think at some point it was less than a dollar. So is it just that right now ransomware, uh, if you're a cyber criminal syndicate, it really is just the most financially viable kind of cyber crime right now? Yeah. So this this problem is incredibly pervasive. You're actually absolutely right. Even outside of the headlines, many companies, just to put, put a finer point with some data on this, many companies that specialize in incident response services report that responding to ransomware is the number one type of incident they are called in to address more than any other type of malware. The ransomware market has exploded in the past few years. And in large part, it's because of just how easy it is for cyber criminals to use it and get paid through it. What's been particularly fascinating to see with this is that attackers have almost turned it into a business. They create the malware, then they sell it as a service to other cyber criminals that want to use ransomware, but they don't want to have to code it or put in any of the development efforts to actually build it or understand what's going on behind the scenes. These attackers treat it like any other startup, even having a support system for them, a customer support network, and forums for them to talk to other customers. And ultimately, these attackers can make a lot of money that way and reduce the risk that's actually on them because they're not the ones who are actually sending out these attacks. Mm. You know, it's interesting. You mentioned colonial pipeline and you know I, I think what kills me is you know to date all the hospitals being attacked that didn't seem to trigger any kind of national response at the federal level in the US but after colonial it seems like things have changed because it was critical infrastructure and it, it wasn't the ransomware attack that actually led to the outage but how they dealt with the ransomware they had to shut some of their systems down because of uh, billing and financial reasons that led to all kinds of supply chain issues and certain regions of the U.S. And then after that, you know, there's all this federal response. There's the executive order. What is happening right now at a collective level to reduce the attacks? Yeah. So some of the interesting stuff that we're seeing happen from, from a federal level is there's tons of legislation coming through left and right, whether there are additional ex executive orders, memorandums, other pieces of legislation that are saying, you have to secure your staff. Like, like we can't sit here and watch um, organizations left and right that you know Americans and and other folks kind of rely on fall over. So, you know, for example, uh, there was a memo that uh, that the Biden administration put out, um, you know, a, a day or two ago, saying that critical infrastructure providers in the in the private sector need to take heed on the recommendations that NIST as well as the rest of the, the agencies um, are putting out there and to implement critical security controls. But the way that they worded it, which is I think is even more interesting, is they're recommending that they go and do that, right? But there's language buried in there that if they don't take action on that, that there's basically a hint towards mandatory legislation being put out there to require them to do that. So it's kind of, you know, they're, they're taking that approach where they're saying, you know what, hey guys, we need you to go and do this. 
But if you don't do this, we may have to force your hand to do this. And so another interesting thing that happened with Colonial as well is that the FBI actually recovered some of the some of the ransom. Do we feel like that will become more common? And could that potentially undermine the actual financial incentives of crime syndicates to continue to pursue ransomware? So I don't I don't think that that's going to become commonplace. I think that's an outlier. Like everybody that saw that kind of be orchestrated and and actually happen, I don't I wouldn't put too much stock in that. I, I believe that the nature of the way that cryptocurrencies work and the way that this money is kind of funneled throughout, you know, various institutions and shell corporations and, you know, the whole, you know, making sure that, you know, that, that they can use the money out there in the real world. That's going to continue to happen. The FBI got very lucky that they got the keys to a very specific crypto wallet where the ransom payment was sent. But that, I wouldn't expect that to be commonplace. I think that the the problem with the you know being with that being advertised that sets this precedent that oh you know we'll pay the ransom and then we're going to lean on to the, the government to get our payment back because they proved that they could do it in this one case. I think that organizations need to take heed or, or caution you know with approaching it from that angle. Yeah, I know there's a lot of controversy around the payments themselves. I mean, I think most government agencies, the the U.S. and other countries, are try to dissuade very strongly organizations from paying the ransom at all. Uh, again, because they feel like it's feeding the the actual industry, which is you know you, you make the payment, <laughs> the criminals receive the payment, and it's just fueling the the market for it. But then at the same time, if you're a desperate organization and there is no help coming, there is no cavalry coming to your aid, like what, what do you do? I find that very interesting. And, and it's kind of something that I've been talking about as well, because there's a debate around outlawing cryptocurrency payments or, or paying the ransom entirely. And while I do think paying the ransom is not the best course of action to take when it comes to defending against ransomware and that defending up front through a, a strong defense is the best option for some organizations this is their only option and so very similar to how we can't actually outlaw breaches outlawing cryptocurrency payments is unlikely to really have a significant impact and if anything it'll force companies to cover up more ransomware attacks or breaches there's a certain point where an organization just like you said has no other option but to pay the ransom and we need to be cognizant of that and instead provide leadership on what security teams must do in order to protect against these attacks. So maybe we can hit a few things on that point, right? Like, are there, you know, quick wins or low hanging fruit that security teams should be addressing now or should have already addressed at this juncture? Um, And maybe, you know, some longer term strategy um, pieces that you'd like to see security teams um, take hold and implement? This is a great question. Steve and I have uh, been researching this extensively, and we recently wrote a blog describing this as outrunning the guy next to you, to use a popular fable. There are immediate, very simple steps companies can take to protect themselves right now. They're not going to prevent every attack, which is why a comprehensive cybersecurity program is so critical. But they can prevent 
your organization from being part of that low-hanging fruit that attackers often target. A few of those immediate steps include making sure you have a strong password policy implemented, enforcing the use of multi-factor authentication, and implementing prevention technology, as well as having backups in case a ransomware attack does hit you. These four steps sound simple, but every step counts. And often the best practices are what we see making the difference in these attacks. Yeah. So, so like Ali mentioned, there's, there's a lot of very tactical steps that you can take to prevent yourself from being the next kind of victim of ransomware, right? It's not perfect, but it gives you a fighting chance. And the, the biggest thing that I want to kind of illustrate with that as well is that folks shouldn't feel like this is, you know, that they're already defeated in this battle. I think it's easy with the hundreds or thousands of attacks that we hear about or don't hear about. Um, to feel like you know the the battle's already been lost, but it hasn't. Longer term, what we recommend organizations do is you need to move from a peri- perimeter-based security model to something like zero trust, where you know you're not inherently allowing access to your network through a variety of different mechanisms that you may have had in place previously. But building up, you know, the verification of those folks that are accessing your network, the devices they're using, as well as the applications and data that they're getting access to. That's really what, in in a longer term strategy, is what will give you the better fighting chance against these and other types of attacks. what ransomware also outlines is it's it's not just the core security team that needs to be part of the strategy. I mean, you've really got to work pretty closely with IT operations. I mean, preventing it is your best bet. If you can't, uh, Ali, you mentioned recovering from backups. I mean, most of the time that is your your IT ops team. So, you know, do you actually ensure that your backups are running successfully? Do you have point in times that you could actually recover from? Um, so it just seems that in a lot of cases if you're not the kind of organization that actually has specific scenario planning for a ransomware where you've tested it in coordination with the rest of your IT team, it might be another another place to start. Absolutely. One of the other things that um, Steve and I both talk about quite frequently in the context of ransomware and, of course, any cyber attack is having a built-out incident response plan and having one specifically for ransomware and not one that's very low level talking about the individual actions that the security team is taking, but one that's organization at that organization level to communicate what the marketing team needs to be doing, what IT needs to be doing, what security needs to be doing, what the CFO needs to be doing and legal. Everyone has um, a part, a role to play in this, unfortunately, but it's the type of thing that makes um, that transparency that Steve was talking about earlier so much easier. Because if you go into it with a plan and know, listen, we know that for our brand, for the trust of our customers, we need to be transparent about this. Now is the time we can plan what that will look like and be prepared to execute on that. I want to go back to the federal government because I feel like I don't want to let, let them off the hook so easily. In a lot of cases, these organized crime syndicates actually have nation state backing. Um, I mean, they're, they're not just run of the mill cyber criminals. Um, they're sophisticated cyber criminals that also might have a nation state 
backed by them. So is there anything that the federal government is doing besides le- legislation and trying to raise the bar for everyone? Are, are there any tactics that they're taking on a geopolitical level to try to reduce these attacks? So that's that's a really tough topic, right? You know, because traditionally when we talk about, you know, this whole area in general is we say that a lot of these problems should be solved further upstream. Like you mentioned, the federal government should be, you know, invested in helping kind of take the offense to make sure that these folks don't have unfettered access to, to be able to go and take down, you know, critical resources. The problem is, is that there's been a lot of just, you know, hand-waving and warning and kind of shaking, you know, my fist at you and saying, you know, stop doing that if you're doing that. But, you know, where where the federal government's kind of been, I, I guess, actually helping more is identifying, you know, those indicators of compromise for like earlier on before those attacks actually get executed so that we can find out because a lot of these sophisticated actors that you're talking about the the folks that are backed by in the entire government of a country you know they're planning their attacks well in advance they're doing reconnaissance on folks networks anything that we can provide organizations to look for when that reconnaissance is being performed or them laying down the foundations of what will eventually uh, lead to a destructive attack that's what gives folks the fighting chance. And the government has been leaning in more to that, funding a lot of the different um, agencies within the government that can go and find that type of information. But I think that we need to, you know, the federal government needs to take more of an offensive role with policy and legislation and sanctions and those types of things in order to dissuade those, you know, other nation state actors from actually doing something. I think the hand-waving isn't isn't really going to accomplish a whole lot. The other thing that I think is important to note here, I totally agree with Steve, but um, the other thing that I think is important to note here is that attribution is very difficult, um, not just to a specific threat actor, a specific group or nation state, but also to then say, yeah, this nation was the one who was actually funding this behind the scenes and actually wanted this to happen. Intent is difficult to prove in any in any court case. <laughs> so with that in mind, it, it's very hard to actually have the U- or give the US government the t- the information that they need to have clause in a conversation like this in a geopolitical context. It's, I think it's one of the reasons, just as Steve was mentioning, that, for example, President Biden talking to Putin about how he shouldn't attack critical infrastructure, ultimately, we're not going to see that having a big impact on what actions Putin is actually pushing behind the scenes, because there's no real way to validate this. And then even if we are able to validate that this is Putin or this is the Russian government, it's a real challenge to know what is an appropriate action that we can take to get them to stop perpetrating that activity. For example, kinetic activity, some type of act of war may not be the best approach to take in the event of something like a ransomware attack on on an American enterprise. We need to kind of find those boundaries. And I don't think that there is a cohesive enough plan within the federal government at this time to define that 
on the scale of affecting geopolitics. So obviously we've we've dug into kind of the many facets of ransomware, but not necessarily what the implications of um you know, or the the impact of this happening to an organization. So can we drill into that a little bit? Because I, I think, and you'll probably expound on this, like this is not just a security isolated issue. This is a much broader issue to the business. Absolutely. The most painful and difficult part about ransomware attacks for businesses is that business disruption that they cause to every aspect of the business. And imagine being unable to access your computer, your business documents, your Excel spreadsheets for days, weeks, an unknown amount of time. I would lose my mind, to be honest, <laughs> for businesses that rely on 100% uptime or as close to 100% uptime as possible like the electric grid and healthcare providers or manufacturing plants, this can be devastating and, and it can potentially lead to the business going under, as we've talked about. This is also why some businesses choose to pay the ransom. They can't afford to lose business days like that, especially not with their large swaths of their employee base unable to work. Yeah, I think the other side of that that's that's really important to to drill into is that you know, when we talk holistically about, you know, the entire organization being part of that plan, right, to, in responding to destructive attacks like ransomware, you know, it's a really, really good idea for organizations to be doing tabletops or simulations of a destructive attack like this. You know, bring in your C-level executives, bring in, I've, we've talked to clients that have brought in their boards as part of those simulations. Everybody has a a job to play when you know an attack like this happens. You know your marketing folks need to know the appropriate response. You know talk about whether you know do you want to go fully transparent and communicate to your clients, your business partners, everybody. You know while your IT teams, uh, your business leaders, everybody are figuring out how to triage and still operate their different lines of business when something like this is happening. We keep finding out more and more, you know, even from clients of Foresters that, you know, folks haven't run that macro level simulation and understood what the output was of that in order to build a holistic response plan to this type of attack. Good parting advice, I'd say. So thank you both for joining us today. Thank you so much for having us. This was great. Thank you very much for having us on. If you like what you heard today, be sure to check out our security and risk event November 9th and 10th in Washington, D.C. and online. For details, visit 4.com slash SR21. That's F-O-R-R dot com slash SR21. Thanks for listening.